critical condition after allegedly being punched during a dispute in Tinsoy Wai last Saturday. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Live across Hong Kong, this is Radio 3. Morning and welcome to Money Talk once again on Radio 3. The time's 8.03 in Hong Kong on Wednesday the 29th of June. This is Peter Lewis with the day's business and finance headlines. China's National Health Commission yesterday said they will halve to seven days the country's COVID-19 quarantine period for inbound travellers with a further three days spent at home. It's the biggest change in COVID prevention rules since China closed its borders in March 2020. The relaxation of the quarantine measures came after Beijing and Shanghai reported yesterday zero new locally transmitted COVID infections. Xingtao newspaper reported yesterday via its sources that the incoming John Lee administration is considering relaxing Hong Kong's entry requirements, including moving inbound quarantine to a 5 plus 2 model, consisting of five days hotel quarantine and two days home quarantine. Rising food and petrol prices have dragged U.S. consumer confidence to a 15-month low. The confidence survey, published by the Conference Board, showed that consumers believe prices will continue to rise, even as the Federal Reserve tightens monetary policy to curb inflation. G7 leaders meeting in Germany wrapped up their gathering by denouncing China over its relations with Russia, human rights and Taiwan. The Group of Seven Communique called on Beijing to urge Russia to halt the war in Ukraine and to refrain from military action against Taiwan. The statement referred to China 14 times compared to a year ago when China was mentioned just four times in the last G7 statement. And global shares were unable to hold on to initial gains following the announcement that China was to ease quarantine restrictions. The FTSE All World Index fell 1.2% Tuesday and the index is back in a bear market, down 20% from last November's record high. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by Asian fund management industry consultant Stuart Aldcroft, Ben Quinlan, CEO at Quinlan & Associates, and RTHK's international economics correspondent, Barry Wood. And if you have any questions or comments for any of those three, please text 63 Email moneytalk at rthk.hk. Post on our Facebook page, Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Or you can tweet us at Money Talk Radio 3. Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. On Wall Street, US stocks fell, led by the tech sector, after the conference board report showed consumer confidence falling to a 15-month low. The S&P 500 fell 2% to 3,822 and dropped back into bear market territory, down 20.7% from its early January high. The Dow tumbled 491 points, that's 1.6% to 30,947. And the tech-heavy Nasdaq Composite was the biggest faller, losing 3% to 11,182 and taking its losses for the year to 28.5%. All three indices are on course to notch two straight quarterly declines for the first time since 2015. In Europe, German consumer sentiment dropped to a record low. The Pan-European Stock 600 index rose a quarter of a percent 
London's FTSE 100 added 0.9%. And Hong Kong stocks reversed morning losses to close in positive territory after officials on the mainland slashed the quarantine period for incoming travellers. Earlier in the day, inflation and recession concerns weighed on sentiment and the Hang Seng Index was dragged lower by heavy selling in shares of 10 cents. But after China's health authorities announced there will halve to seven days the COVID-19 quarantine period, the Hang Seng turned around to close 189 points or 0.9% higher at 22,419. The tech index rose 0.6%. Tencent dropped 3.3% after its biggest shareholder, Amsterdam-based Prosus, said it will begin an orderly disposal of some of its $130 billion stake to fund its own buyback program. The Shanghai Composite was up 0.9% at 3409 in the commodities markets, Brent crude oil, that's up 2.5% at $117.98 a barrel after the G7 indicated that it was ready to explore caps on energy costs to try and limit Russian revenues. Gold is down slightly at $1,819 an ounce. The US 10-year Treasury bond yield fell three basis points to 3.18%. The yield on the 10-year German Bund rose eight basis points to 1.62% after the European Central Bank President Christine Lagarde said the ECB would act in a determined and sustained manner to tackle inflation pressures. The US dollar spiked higher and the euro weakened after the ECB also said it would start its new defragmentation tool this weekend to try and prevent bond yields in peripheral euro area countries from rising too far from core eurozone yields. The euro is down 0.6% at $1.05 and a quarter cents. The Japanese yen is half a percent weaker, uh, trading at $130 and six cents right now. Sterling is also lower. It's trading at one dollar twenty-one and three quarter cents, and nine Hong Kong dollars and fifty-six cents. The Chinese yuan is at six point seven in offshore markets, and Bitcoin is back near twenty thousand, trading this morning at twenty thousand two hundred dollars. U.S. stock index futures are unchanged uh, this morning in Asian trading, but nevertheless, Asia Pacific markets are lower. The ASX 200 off 0.8%. The Nikkei 225 in Japan is down uh, three quarters of a percent. Cosby in South Korea is off 1.2%. And futures markets pointing to a decline of about 280 points for the Hang Seng at the open this morning. It's 8.10, and to analyse all our business headlines, we have a trio of erudite guests for you. As always on a Wednesday morning, Asian fund management industry consultant Stuart Oldcroft is with us. Morning, Stuart. And good morning to you, Peter. And uh, in our Queensway studio, we shall find Ben Quinlan, the CEO and managing partner at Quinlan & Associates. Welcome back, Ben. Good morning, Peter. Thank you. And over in Washington, D.C., also as always on a Wednesday, we have our international economics correspondent, Barry Wood. Morning to you, Barry. Good morning to you, Peter, and I think the erudition is with my colleagues, including yourself, in Hong Kong. <laughs> we'll try our best. We won't disappoint. China's National Health Commission on Tuesday said they're going to halve to seven days the country's COVID-19 quarantine period for inbound travellers with a further three days spent at home. 
following seven days spent in centralised facilities, travellers face three days of at-home medical observation versus seven previously. And that's the biggest change in COVID prevention rules since China closed its borders in March 2020. A spokesperson for the National Health Commission, Mi Feng, stressed that officials are not relaxing COVID measures and she said we have to make our containment measures more targeted. Um, Stuart, dare we hope? Is this maybe the beginning of the end of zero COVID? Well, we can hope. There's nothing to stop us hoping. Um, I think it is probably. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I think we've talked about this before, but uh, I'm quite certain that um, in um, John Lee's inaugural speech, Beach when he uh, accepts the office of chief executive of Hong Kong on the 1st of July, he will say something about COVID restrictions in Hong Kong. Uh, we have to hope that what will happen is that the, he will open, he will announce a proper timetable and probably ease some of the restrictions. Um, I still don't get, and I don't think many other people here in Hong Kong get, why it is necessary for people who have homes available to them that they can't go and do their COVID um, quarantine at their home rather than in a hotel. I mean, the only benefit is that to the hotel, it keeps the, the hotels occupied. Um, and as we now know, um, those of us who have had to do it, um, hotels are, are very often uh, ripping off uh, their, their customers. And uh, certainly there are uh, many reports these days of how uh, overcharging for the lack of availability of rooms has, has occurred w widely for people who desperately getting uh, guess desperate to get a room so that they can even just arrive in hong kong mm. so home quarantine is the way forward not hotel quarantine and that's what i think we should really want to have to see ben how significant do you think this is given that even after this move China still lags behind most other countries, which have pretty well reopened fully now and dropped all their testing requirements when you enter and all quarantine requirements. Having just got back from a trip to Australia, I understand that the experience associated with Hong Kong in terms of arrival wasn't the most pleasant. It's manageable, but again, the contrast or disconnect between what's happening with other financial centers and the rest of the world is quite stark. Um, I believe that the move by China is obviously any move to open things up a little bit more is a step in the right direction. But going to the comment you made, if th this is not in any way what I would call uh, a widespread relaxation. I think mm -hmm. this is just an indication of where uh, the current climate is with respect to current COVID infections. And unless the you know dynamic zero policy is fundamentally uh, reversed, I, I think what this is going to demonstrate is uh, potentially a little bit more flexibility around the edges of where this policy can reduce to and ultimately where it could potentially rebound to if there is another outbreak. So I'm just mindful this is more a reflection of the current situation rather than what I would call a long-term structural shift if you read into the you know the policy announcement itself. It clearly yep. given you've just got back from Australia it hasn't put you off traveling into Hong Kong or, or has it it's just that you're doing far less traveling than you used to. Oh it, <laughs> the trips now aren't exactly your short two or three days away you know mm. I, I went to Australia for three weeks and then decided to extend it up to two months I mean the bottom line is these people traveling out of Hong Kong are doing much longer haul longer style extended trips away 
day mm-hmm. and uh, and just making the most of various locations. So I never know people who are due to leave Hong Kong for a few days and then come back in. That kind of business travel was over. Yeah, completely over. I agree with that. I, I think you also should uh, add um, here that um, you know the the only people who are allowed to do the quarantine are people who have. Um, a Hong Kong uh, permanent ID card and therefore are uh, entitled for residency in Hong Kong. So we are not getting business visitors. We're not getting tourists. Mm. And can you imagine, you know, Hong Kong used to have 45 million tourists a year before COVID. Um, There's just absolutely no space in the hotels uh, for any tourist visitors, any business visitors, when you are insisting on having residents occupy hotel rooms. So, I mean, here's the the thing. You get the residents into their homes, you then start to create some space to allow tourists and business visitors. And that's the way forward, I think. Barry, how does this compare to the U.S.? Although these these rules are now being relaxed on the mainland, um, compared to the U.S., I don't think you have any, any restrictions, do you now? No, we don't. No, it's a, it's a, I, I, I listen to my erudite friends in Hong Kong and I realize you're part of China. And there's the difference. I mean, Japan is uh, mostly open. South Korea is mostly open. And as you say, the United States is completely open. I was in the UK recently. That's completely open. Now, that's not to say, Peter, that there aren't cases. There are many cases. But uh, you don't see many masks, certainly in London. You don't see masks in New York City or Washington. Oh, well, some, and particularly Mm -hmm. Asian students are wearing masks. But we do have mild cases of COVID, but we're completely open. You're right. And has business travel and leisure travel returned pretty well back to normal now over there? Are people traveling and flying around once again? It's exploded, in fact because airlines are forced to cancel because they can't have enough crew available on the demand for flights. Mm. So it's extraordinary. Now, it's leisure travel because people still have some cash from all the stimulus from the COVID time. But yes, business travel is on and vacation travel is exploded. Um, Stuart and Ben, here's something. Hong Kong's hopes of regaining its status as a global aviation hub are fading by the day, according to an industry leader. Willie Walsh, Director General of the International Air Transport Association, said some carriers have abandoned plans to regain their Hong Kong network for the moment. And he said that every day that passes, it becomes more difficult for Hong Kong to regain its global status. He said, to be honest, I think for some airlines, they've completely abandoned plans Uh, for their Hong Kong network because of the scope to recover other markets first. And just a reminder here uh, that foreign airline crew are forced to take rat tests before their flight and on arrival and must self-isolate for the whole time they're here, not allowed to go into the community. Emirates Airlines, which used to fly four days, four flights a day between Hong Kong and Dubai, is now operating just once via Bangkok. Finnair used to operate two flights a day from Hong Kong to Helsinki, but it's now doing just one flight a week starting in July. So, Stuart, do you agree? Do, do you think we are um, losing our status now as a global aviation hub and it's going to be difficult to get that back? Or is that a bit of an overreaction? Uh, no, I don't think it is an overreaction. I think it is an accurate statement. Um, you just consider the, the plight of Cathay Pacific, who are flying about 2 or 3% 
at the moment of their pre-pandemic um, roster against Singapore Airlines that are flying over 60% of their pre-pandemic roster. Mm. Um, and, you know, this is, this is going to be a big issue. I know, I know we're building a third runway at, uh, at uh, Hong Kong International Airport, because we expect it to recover. But, you know, at the moment, there's not much chance of that happening, it's certainly any time in, in the short term. Um, there, and if you try to book a flight, even if you want to just go overseas from Hong Kong, um, it's very, very difficult to find a flight because there are so few. So, you know, this, the, the, we are unfortunately probably being forced to stay here um some people will be forced to stay here for longer than they expect to want to um and uh, we need to have this change ben do you think we can get their status back or uh, are other 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 airports now going to become the asian hub very difficult to run a business when uh, the goalposts move and there's so many changes with respect to how you need to comply. I, I genuinely you know, take my hat off to Cathay and all their staff and what they've had to endure over this past few years. I mean, I have a lot of friends who are pilots and I can tell you hands down, every single one of them is looking for a new job. Every single really? one, oh. every single one, without any exception, is looking for something else. So if you get to a position where you realize that that many of your workforce are disenfranchised, I mean, the, the kind of experiences that they have to go through. And uh, I, again, there is a certain degree of empathy you have to recognize when you're a pilot, you travel to another country and you can't visit any of that country. You come back, you're quarantined, restricted. You can do longer-based trips and then take you out of the whole roster system for a very long time. I mean, and moving to productivity-based contracts, which they've all done as a result of their new, uh, new contracts with Cathay, all well and good if there's a chance to be more productive. But there aren't enough flights for them to rack up the hours and all of this time that they're spending on the ground and so on, they're not getting paid. So in my view, of course, uh, I'm not surprised to see this. And without the talent, then what, right? Every business needs people. Well, I've got an email here that I wanted to read out to you from a listener um, on the subject of um, what's happening to Hong Kong's economy as a result of these travel uh, restrictions. It comes from Alonso Wong, moneytalk.rthk.hk, if you want to email. Alonso says, it's anyone's guess when Hong Kong's continued restrictive COVID-related quarantine rules will be eased. Here's an example of how their economic damaging effects will last until next year, if not longer. He said a few months ago, a friend of mine booked a four-week holiday on a luxury cruise liner for next year. The cruise was meant to sail from Hong Kong in early February 2023 to a number of Southeast Asian destinations before returning to Hong Kong in March. Yesterday, she received an email from the cruise company Seabourn, which is owned by Carnival Cruises, to advise her that her itinerary had been changed. The voyage will now begin and end in Singapore in lieu of Hong Kong due to continued restrictions and uncertainty around access to the ports we visit in Asia. And it says particularly the continued closure of Hong Kong to cruise ship calls. In short, Hong Kong has been entirely removed from the itinerary, despite the fact that the cruise doesn't take place until February, March 2023. And Alonso says John Lee has a golden chance to endear himself to the public by removing the absurd travel restrictions which his predecessor has implemented. Let's hope that he seizes the 
opportunity. Failure to do so will extend our economic slump and likely cause irreversible damage to our city's role as a global financial hub. Stuart, what do you say to that? Oh, I agree with all of it. I don't think I need to add anything to it. It's just uh, exactly right. Ben, quick comments on that? Yeah, I mean, look, again, so many people I know are leaving Hong Kong and it's it's just become very untenable. In the past, when I was running my business, it was great to get business from clients offshore when I was on Zoom. Now, that's because everyone else was on Zoom. Now I'm competing against people that can shake hands, sit down, visit families, all of that. It's, it's a very different environment and I do think there is a golden opportunity to potentially make Hong Kong the one and only open, fully open, uh, international Chinese city, which would be great. Um, but again, um, you know, <laughs> I'm not in a position to push that agenda here. I would love to see it happen, though. OK, let's move on. Uh, Barry, I want to ask you about U.S.-China relations. President Joe Biden unveiled at the G7 summit in Germany the $600 billion infrastructure plan to counter China's Belt and Road um, initiative. Tell us a little bit about that and what the U.S. is trying to achieve with this. Well, I can't tell you a great deal because the details are not really revealed. But clearly, uh, it is an American-led effort to challenge the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, I think it is um, somewhat um, misguided if it is going to be money spent in the United States. And that is... um, That is not uh, what Belt and Road Initiative is all about. It's about helping uh, developing countries and emerging Mm. economies to to get on their feet. The Americans, I think, are right to focus on the debt that uh, is not revealed when the Chinese come into a place and and shower the, the recipients with money. We really don't know the conditions under which the loan has to be repaid. I think the American plan, which they're obviously coordinating with the Europeans and the Japanese is going to be a largely grant-based. We'll have to see what the countries are. Uh, We do know that they're going to focus on uh, telecommunications. They're going to talk about clean energy. That probably means windmills at sea and uh, and healthcare. I I think that uh, it's, uh, it's noble in the sense that developing countries need infrastructure and there's a lot of it to be done but clearly it is an effort to challenge China. And what you mentioned, Peter, about China being mentioned in that communique 14 times, where it was mentioned four times at the last G7, does really reflect the fact that we're, if not in a new Cold War with China, we're in what Henry Kissinger calls the foothills of a Cold War. And this is a real problem. So the, the one thing that has been achieved under President Biden is that the Europeans, Japanese and Americans all sing from the same hymnal now, where mm. under Donald Trump they did not. Well, that's the big change, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's, I find it a bit alarming, that statement, because it's really ratcheting up the rhetoric on China 14 times um, now. And not just the U.S. anymore. It seems to be uh, the whole uh, the whole G7 now on the same page. That's rather worrying, isn't it, for uh, geopolitics? Yeah, I think it's very worrying. It was Russia mentioned in the same statement. Uh, you know, Russia is probably in a far worse position than China in terms of its relationship with the rest of the world. And um, I think we, we, we ought to be at least alert to, to, to that from a comparative perspective. Um, I, I don't entirely agree with the um, impression that's being given that this initiative from the U.S., is intended to challenge China's Belt and Road. 
I think it should be looked at more as a, an additional mm. form of um, infrastructure development, and, uh, and, and it should be seen to be benefiting developing countries and probably helping American industry and European industry go into developing countries in a way that they haven't previously, but in the same way that China already is going in. So you could have both. There's no reason why yeah, you can't have room for both. But is it exactly. fair, the criticism of the Belt and Road, that it's a debt trap, that it's trapping uh, countries into debts that they have no hope of paying back? Well, certainly there has been some evidence of that so far. Um, it's, uh, it's not a transparent scheme, that's very clear. But I think, uh, as, uh, and, and we have to see whether the, the US-led scheme will be transparent, um, because these sorts of things, you know, if, if you give money to other people, you expect something back. Um, and, that's, and that's the way China has thought about it for Belt and Road. And I dare say that the U.S. will probably think the same. Mm. What, what do you make of this, Ben? Yeah, I was going to say, I don't think there's any degree of altruism that would come through the U.S. moves. <laughs> You're I, probably right. I genuinely feel that they're, they're well behind on the infrastructure game vis-a-vis China, particularly with uh, respect to what they're doing internationally. But, you know, whether they explicitly charge an interest rate on, on a loan to fund infrastructure projects or, you know, seek out other vested interests, um, I would just say I don't think there's any, any focus here on altruism. And the U.S. is not in a position to fund such massive mm-hmm. things given the outlook ahead for the U.S. economy um, and the fact that they're already in a massive debt, uh, debt trap <laughs> themselves. So, um, yeah. Do, do you think uh, private financing right. will come into this? Do you think people for will sure. be interested? Yeah, for sure. But again, it would depend on the economics of each and every project yeah. and infrastructure deals. Uh, the private sector won't have the same, definitely won't have any of the, the broader objectives that uh, policymakers would. It would simply be, you know, what's in it for me financially. The trouble is yes. a lot of these projects end up um, being unviable, don't they, when you throw money at them. And there's been too many of them. We've seen that in the Belton Road. We've seen that in other projects as well. The money tends to go to the wrong projects. But they go to wherever anybody's put their hand out and said, I, know, I need something. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> yes, you're right, Stuart. Look, uh, could I just mention one example here in the States? You've got $50 billion that is planned for the CHIPS Act. Uh, that is the uh, uh, measure that would promote uh, computer semiconductor manufacturing in the United States. Intel, uh, the U.S.-based company, is saying, hold it, if we don't see some of that money then we're not going to go forward with some of these plants. They're saying, hold it, the Europeans subsidize to a much greater extent. The Asians do far more than the Europeans, and the Americans have to do something because we've lost our lead in semiconductors. This is, in one sense, a domestic counterpart to exactly what you're talking about with Belt and Road and the New American Initiative. Well, what a lot of countries need, though, is not more loans. They need debt relief, don't they? Well, yes, because they've they've already got a huge amount of debt, many of them. Mm. Um, Look at Sri Lanka and Pakistan. Yes, Mm. Sri Lanka is just in a a very bad way. Um, And I don't see that coming out from any of these uh, schemes. Uh, Belt and Road doesn't do that, and I don't think this initiative from the U.S. looks as though it's going to do that either. Um, There's still going to be an expectation that countries have got to put themselves in a position where they can pay back debt. Um, because, you don't, as I said, you don't, you don't give away money for nothing. and You expect something in return, and um, if you haven't got anything to return, um, as some of these countries, have, they're going to be having a hard time, I would guess. Ben, final thoughts from you? 
No, I fully agree. I think this whole situation calls into calls into question exactly, you know, what policy should be with respect to indebting countries. And we're in a situation at the moment where we've ridden on the back of, you know, two decades or one and a half decades of just very, very cheap, free helicopter money flying out of space. And people are now starting to realize in this environment things have to be paid back. And without the capacity mm -hmm. to actually pay these back or thinking through what these projects mean for the end state of economics, right? Old-fashioned build your Excel model. What's a terminal value? Will this pay itself back? I mean, it's very questionable how much money is being allocated towards very unproductive endeavors in the world economy. And I'm kind of looking forward to a bit of a reset because it's going to weed out a lot of businesses, infrastructure projects, and initiatives that have for a very long time made very little sense. Okay. Well, sadly, we've run out of time, but thank you very much for that. That was Ben Quinlan, CEO and Managing Partner at Quinlan & Associates. Stuart Allcroft, Asia Fund Management Industry Consultants, and our international economics correspondent over in Washington, D.C., Barry Woods. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Take another look at the markets. Uh, in Australia, things sliding more to the downside. The SX200 off just over 1%. In Japan, the Nikkei 225 is down 0.9%. The Cosby, uh, that's off 1.3%. And here in Hong Kong, looks like the Hang Seng is going to open about 300 points lower in just under an hour's time. Thank you very much for listening. Do join me again tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. Back chats coming up after the news with Janice Wong and Anna Fenton. The weather forecast, sunny periods and a few showers. Very hot in the afternoon, maximum temperature around 33 degrees. That very hot weather warning is in force once again. And then there'll be a few showers tomorrow and squally showers in the following couple of days. The temperature right now is 29 degrees and it's 83% relative humidity. Times 8.32. Here's Andy Shorosky with the half-hour news. Well, thank you, Peter. The police have closed a number of roads in Wan Chai North as part of a series of security measures in the expectation that President Xi Jinping will personally attend celebrations to mark the 25th anniversary of the handover. The Exhibition Center MTR station will close tomorrow. Assistant Commissioner of Police Loi Kam Ho was asked whether the force would change its security plans if President Xi does not attend in person. We actually maintain in close contact with our counterparts, okay, making sure of the latest updates. And if there's any latest changes uh, in our president's visits program, we will correspondingly adjust our security measures and deployment in order to reduce or to minimize the inconvenience caused to members of public. Overseas, the head of NATO, Jens Stoltenberg, says Turkey has agreed to support Sweden and Finland's membership of the alliance following weeks of wrangling. The Turkish government had accused the Nordic countries of sheltering supporters of the Kurdish militant group, the PKK. Mr. Stoltenberg made the announcement in Madrid ahead of a NATO summit. Finland and Sweden commit to fully support Turkey against threats to its national security. This includes further amending the domestic legislation, cracking down on PKK activities, and entering into an agreement with Turkey on extradition. In light of the progress we have made together, Turkey has agreed to support Finland and Sweden joining NATO. 
The U.S. Congressional Committee investigating the attack last year on the Capitol building by Donald Trump supporters has heard a first-hand account of the day's events from a former White House insider. Cassidy Hutchinson told the hearing Mr. Trump knew some of the crowd had weapons when he urged them to storm Congress. She said he'd heard that a Secret Service agent, Bobby Engel, had to restrain Mr. Trump when he tried to grab the steering wheel of his presidential limousine, demanding that he be driven to join the crowds at the Capitol. The president said something to the effect of, I'm the effing president, take me up to the Capitol now. To which Bobby responded, sir, we have to go back to the West Wing. Mr. Trump has dismissed the account as sick and fraudulent. The British socialite Ghislaine Maxwell has been sentenced to 20 years in jail by a New York court for sex trafficking. Maxwell recruited and groomed underage girls for her former